The brands we love most are those with big hearts, those who do what's right even when it's a difficult thing to do, those who help those around them even when it hurts the bottom line, and those who stand for something and drive change even in the face of adversity. These are the brands that make the world a better place to live, and their stories must be told. In this podcast, we share their stories in hope that others will be inspired to follow. Welcome to Brand Heart. Hello and welcome to Brand Heart. I'm your host, Jeff Friedman, and today I'm here with John Feynman, the founder and CEO of Inner City Weightlifting. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Sure. So just to get started, if you can tell the listeners, uh, what is Inner City Weightlifting? Uh, Inner City Weightlifting is a nonprofit, and we are really focused on amplifying the voice and agency of people who have been most impacted by mass incarceration and systemic racism. And we do that through our gyms and through our social enterprise of personal training, where we're able to flip power dynamics, create authentic relationships, and at the same time, uh, help create economic mobility for uh, people in our program. So talking about that, you said flip power dynamics. And, and, and so what do you mean by all that? It, to me, th- this is this is a big part of our why. Um, and it's, it's, it was not an original part of ICW. When we initially started, we thought this was going to be a weight train program. We quickly right. realized how in many ways naive it was of me to think that somehow weight training was going to change someone's life. People in our program uh, oftentimes worry about rent, food, utilities. Uh, We have people who are shot and paralyzed, people going in and out of jail. Uh, Weight training is not going to change anyone's life. What it did was give me and now us this opportunity to connect with people who society very literally told us not to. And around that time, as we start to evolve, we go from this weight training program, which more works as a medium than an actual kind of method uh, to a workforce development track and personal training. And so we're talking about economic mobility. We start getting people certified. We open up our own gyms. And in many ways, you know, economic mobility is great. We have people making over 90,000 a year coming from family incomes of less than 10K per year. Now, that being said, as great as that is, what we realize is that our trainers are training CEOs of billion dollar companies, young up and coming professionals. And our personal training clients, they're not coming to our gym to do something for someone or to mentor someone. They're coming because they value someone as a fitness professional. And that immediately starts to flip the power dance. It helps to transcend these cultural norms that dictate who we should or shouldn't be around, where we should or shouldn't be, and allows people to connect authentically where you care about an individual and therefore it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle or social issue you you are in, you are connected through a shared humanity and dignity. And and that is what we mean by flipping power dynamics. It allows for all that to happen. And it allows for us to really hit at the core of, of how we've evolved to not just view ourselves anymore as a workforce development track, but really a social justice organization. Interesting. So it's not, so just to be clear on the model, it, you're not training, you're, you're training people to become trainers and those trainers are then your, so that's kind of the power dynamic, right? It's, it's people who might, you know, I guess even people when they're listening, they might've said, Oh, it's, it's weightlifting for people in the inner city. It's actually the inner city. Uh, it's, it's all those people that you mentioned kind of becoming the trainers 
and them training, you know, the, the other, everyone else is, is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is correct. And you know, that's, they're not just training individuals, but we're also training fortune 500. I would even say, I don't know what companies I'm specifically allowed to say, but I would say we're, and this is accurate. We're training fortune five companies as well. Um, yeah. Wow. So again, when we talk about flipping power dynamics prior to the pandemic, getting to walk into some of the buildings as the professional, um, it, it, right. it's, it, it hits on so many different levels of, of why this model really works. Right. Wow. And so, um, what, I mean, what got you to start this, right? So this isn't just any, you didn't just open a gym, you, you opened something pretty special and there's like, there's an interesting model and way of thinking around this. So what, what got you to start this? For me, there was never this aha moment, but it definitely came from this experience I had in 2005. So my first year of undergrad, uh, doing a year of AmeriCorps, um, it was actually through soccer. I had a chance to meet people in MS 13. Uh, now I did not know they were in MS 13. And when I get back, some people tell me, you know, how dangerous it was for me to be around, uh, Alexin and some of his friends. Um, I have to jump in. What is, is MS 13? Uh, so MS 13 and, uh, you know, I always want to explain the context before I, I, I say something. MS 13 is a group of people who have been, reduced by society and the judicial system to what's called a, a quote unquote gang. And now the w- reason why I say okay. that is that I think that labeling people gang members uh, is actually problematic is it's used in the courts to uh, not just tack on more years of punishment. It's also used to play into white fear so that people don't care about someone. And it, it is a label that is applied without any uh, search for someone's context, circumstance, or humanity. Um, right. so that, that's what MS 13, um, has been labeled as. Okay. All right. Um, thank you. So you know, through soccer, I get a chance to meet people as people. And, and what I saw was not this overwhelming violence and danger that everyone warned me of. I saw people who loved each other. And as this white guy from Amherst who grew up on the same systems as, as everyone else and being told the same things as everyone else, the people I met profoundly shifted my perception is when you see someone expressing love, you're forced to wrestle with the nuance and reality of who someone is as a human being as the entirety of who that individual is, not just a specific snapshot of someone in the eyes of society based on a very specific point in time. Um, so end of that year, I become a personal trainer. I go from this AmeriCorps stipend of $800 a month and living in Boston to all of a sudden making 120 k a year at the age of 23, which is an awesome little change up for me. Yeah, nice. Uh, um, yeah, it's great not to have to worry about, like my splurge back in AmeriCorps was a Dunkin' Donuts cup of coffee and a, and a, and a bagel on the weekends. I loved it. Um, <laughs> uh, and I love personal training, but never forgot about Lexan and, and just this idea that, you know, maybe we could combine weight training and working with people who, from what I saw, there was no shortage of good programs out there. There was absolutely a shortage of good programs who could help navigate the safety logistics of someone like Alexa of someone who is in a similar situation. Uh, so about that time I go to Babson, I get my one year MBA and, and I do want to give a shout out to Babson because 
it was this last semester there, we got a bootstrap pilot model of inner city weightlifting off the ground. Um, we grew, you know, relatively fast, fast enough where it put a real strain on, you know, being able to complete the typical classroom assignments and Babson and the professors there because they lean in and appreciate entrepreneurship so much. I was able to actually restructure a lot of my coursework to match what I needed to do to help grow inner city weightlifting. That's um, great. And so end of that year, uh, well, actually let's say during that year, we got that bootstrap pilot model off the ground. We, we had some initial funding. Um, I think personal training actually came to me as I was in a meeting, I was even talking about personal training, getting people certified, but that's what the funder heard. And I thought it was a great idea. So I just, I just went with it. Um, you know, one of those good miscommunications by me and just saying, yeah, that's absolutely what we do. Um, and, and, and running with it from there. That's great. So how, I mean, I, I imagine you just, you just talked about, you know, you, you met the people in MS 13 and, you know, you view them people who loved each other. And, and by the way, I bet people who really appreciate what you're doing for them more than maybe anyone else. Like, you know, as, as you talk about it, I think about these trainers that are not only amazing trainers, but love what they do and, and probably express that to the people they train. I mean, what, so I'm, I'm imagining what is that experience like when I walk into inner city weightlifting and when you guys come to us, I, it just feels like there's this different bond that happens between your trainers and their trainees versus maybe just any other, I'm going to go and get a trainer. I think, you know, the last two years certainly highlight some of that. I think one, the field of personal training is somewhat unique. So like I said, this is what I was doing before starting up uh, uh, ICW and I was training some of the people on our program, CEOs of billion dollar companies. I was training experts in the field um, and they were listening to me this, in this unique situation. I knew more any other right. situation as a 23 year old with very little experience. I don't know much. Uh, so I, you know, the relationship clients and trainers have and form it is somewhat unique to the industry. But the reason why I point to the last two years is that with our clients and the connections that clients have with the trainers, and, and these are genuine connections. They come because the training is great. They stay because not only does someone get this health and wellness benefit, but in many ways, we all evolve as people together. Uh, as, as, you know, citizens and, 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 and our participation and what society should look like. Now, the last two years, you get the pandemic, you have, uh, uh, much too late and, and, um, I hope it's not, uh, winding down, but potentially much short, much, uh, uh, too short lived, um, uh, racial awakening, um, and, and, and way too late. And, and what we saw in the gym is clients and trainers having these authentic conversations, not right. this typical kind of white person, you know, shedding off their guilt. What can I do? But people who valued each other, people who could have conversations because that trust was there. And, and I will say, having done this now, in our, we're in our 13th year, um, as cynical as I can be at, you know, how slow change may be. 
where my optimism and hope comes from is what we get to see in the gym every day, individuals connecting, even if society is going to take way too long. We as individuals have so much control over our own actions. And that is incredible to see uh, in our gyms every day. And so, you know, to your point, you come in our gym, you're going to get a great workout. You're going to see people laughing, smiling, you're going to have a great time. And you're also going to be around some conversations that are not happening in many other gyms and many other companies. And I think it becomes a huge part of our value proposition because it happens authentically here. Right. It's interesting. I mean, you, you, it, it's, it's fascinating just to think about, right? I mean, there is this, I mean, now I, it makes sense to me, the power dynamic and, and, you know, that's one way to put it, but I think it's, it's also this, it's a, it's a respect, right? It's a shift in who a power or not. It's the shift in who's the leader, a shift in who's the expert, a shift in, you know, who's the trainer versus the trainee, right? Or the expert versus the non-expert. And, and I don't know where else you see that happening. I mean, you, this is, that is the core of this program. How do you, you know, so it's amazing to see that in this, I guess, you know, I'll call it relatively speaking, small space. How do you take that and replicate it so it, it becomes the norm? You know, that's a big it, question. I don't know. It, it's, we say all the time, what we do, it's not rocket science. It's just hard to scale and hard to execute. Because again, authenticity has to be at its core. Now, that being said, our, I guess, hypothesis at this point is we see what's happening at the individual level. And we're also starting to see you get enough individuals. I guess I'll say this in someone's story. The amount of clients that we have that actually bring in their family members, their kids, wow. that family is now having very different conversations. Yeah. That family now cares in a way they might have cared before, but now you know someone. Right. And it allows you to go beyond the logic and the probabilities and the statistics to now understand the reality, the certainty of the barriers, the systemic inequities, the systemic racism that people are up against because now you, you truly care about an individual, even if it wasn't kind of this connection searching for that purpose. And so to me, I say that because I think the way it works is that you reach enough individuals, all of a sudden you're working with families. You reach enough right. families, now all of a sudden you're working with social circles. Reach enough social circles, now you're working with communities. Reach enough people, and all of a sudden that ripple extends from individual to family to social circle to community, ultimately to society. So as we look right. to grow, and we actually have a pilot up and running in Chicago now, um, you know, is very much with with that in mind. We only need to be so big quality and authenticity has to be at the center of what we do. But if we can get enough clients, if we can get enough companies engaged, if we can get enough trainers, that ripple can extend out and create some real change. That's great. So I'm just curious, any like, I want to hear a story, right? So, so I'm sure there are many stories where a trainer came back, where a trainee came in probably was like, what am I doing here? Maybe even scared to come in, right? Because they've been trained, uh, not trained, but, you know, go back, going back to sy systemic racism. It's like, what am I getting myself into? Right. Maybe am I going to get shot when I go? I, I don't know. Like, what are they going to think when they go in? And then having their mind kind of changed and, and say, oh, my God, this is incredible. Not only am I 
not only is this helping my health, it's helping who I am as a person. It's helping me learn, grow. I've introduced my family. I've introduced, I want to like, is there a story that you can share? When we first started, you know, I guess the, when we first launched the initial question was, could we actually work with who we said we were going to? And the answer was yes. Then it was right. the question of, can we get people certified as trainers? The answer was yes. Then the question was, is anyone going to come to our gyms and, and pay for training? Uh, and we looked at that as a spectrum of people potentially interested. On one end, you got the people who are so sold on the social mission, they'll drive 90 minutes to get to our gym. Right. Then you've got people on the other end that say, you know, Dorchester is the most dangerous place in Boston. And, and you know, what we're doing is dangerous. I'm not going there. You start with the people you can reach, and then you slowly start to reach people in the middle. People who are, might be a little bit hesitant, but they right. come because their friends are coming. That group becomes our biggest champions. And so this is maybe within the first year. So we, we launched our first gym in 2012. We were borrowing space from 2010, 2012. Uh, and we had the CEO of a hedge fund who was training with us. Um, and, and so I'm at one of the top floors of, of at the time, it was the Hancock Tower. I forget what name it's changed to now. Uh, as a funny, well, an ironic aside, you know, people talk about where they're comfortable and where they're not. I've never been more uncomfortable than in that room at the summer cocktail party where most people are talking about what kind of boat they have. I don't know how to have that conversation. Uh, so anyway, I, I am there. Uh, I'm talking to someone asking me what I do. I explain that person says that sounds dangerous. The CEO is standing right next to me. says, I train there twice, a, twice a week. The same person who's told me that sounds dangerous looks at me and says, my daughter works out. Maybe she should go there too. Huh. And so I say that because there's nothing I could have said to that person. There's nothing someone in our program could have said to that person, but right. his friend said it. And just like that, his, and again, I, I really like this term, Heather McGee used it in, in the some of us, uh, this white fear fades because the reality is when we look at, you know, the issues of, of gun violence, white people are so afraid of it. And yet we're also creating all the circumstances and we're not even near it. Right. Generally speaking. So this untrue, I guess, fear that comes from what, and I'll say it for myself, what, what I was told growing up, you know, this, this idea of a quote unquote gang member, uh, again, right. without any context for who that person is. Um, it's actually quite easy to break through it once you experience firsthand, right. once you realize that there are people in your social circle who have already kind of given their uh, uh, firsthand experience and it forces people to really question our own actions. And to me, that's again, when we talk about flipping, flipping power dynamics, it's what one of the parts I'm most passionate about this organization is that you know, we're always looking as a society, we should change the person who you know is involved in something we deem unacceptable. But we never look to say, what have we done historically and present day to create the circumstance that that person now needs to get around? So right. why should the person responding to the problems that society has laid at their feet be the person required to change? and not society have any ownership in what our actions have led to right. and can otherwise 
lead to a new reality. And again, I think that's a big part of kind of that story and, and, and kind of where the change should lie, uh, or at least yeah. some big ownership is again, it's not to reduce anyone's agency or accountability, but we're all a piece of this. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, what was the, what was the term you said? White fear fades. Yeah. What white fear is it's, 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 it's when you actually look at it, yeah, instinctually it plays into what has allowed us to survive millennia. Uh, and yet it is so irrational and it is, right. it is what we use to rationalize otherwise irrational problems like right. mass incarceration. There's no way we should be locking that many people up, but white fear allows us to, to not even think twice right. about why are, why are we locking someone up for I mean, basically nothing, you know, right. <laughs> so, right. so we're yeah. going to join on them. Okay. You know, get that person in jail. It's a bad person. Uh, you know, it's not right. rational, uh, but right. white fear is what allows that to happen. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is, it's fascinating what you guys are doing and, and it, you know, and, and that term of white fear and, and you guys are causing, you know, you're, you're helping white fear go away. Right. I mean, with every one of those conversations from the CEO to his friend, to his daughter, and another person saying, there's nothing to be scared about. Like, you know, this is a community that circumstances have led to what, you know, society has led to their circumstances. That's not something that we should be scared of. It's something we should be understanding of and helping of and, 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 and help other people see that. Right. I mean, so um, I'm just curious how, so you've, you've shared, you said you started with one gym. How have you grown and how have, how, how has inner city um, weightlifting taken off? Uh, well, I guess, you know, how have I grown as, as a person? I, I very much used to be when I first moved to Boston, people told me don't cross um, Mass Ave on Tremont street. In turn, right. I tell other people to do that. I know people who live on the other side now. In fact, up until last year, I lived on the other side, I lived right, right. Uh, in, in Roxbury by, by Lennox. Um, right. I know people and therefore I now know the harm of what I was saying. And right. again, it's not to ignore reality. It's not to say that, that, you know, one people shouldn't just be kind of operating without an understanding of our, of our history, um, and, right. and, and, and understandable trust issues, but we have to get past this whole don't cross a certain street because the other thing I'll point out is that I was never told not to go to South Boston where Whitey Bulger was from. Right. Um, yeah. and so we have to really look at, you know, why, why is one person, one group, one community looked at in such a way that we are so afraid and, and, and the other group gets played by Johnny Depp in, in a blockbuster movie. Right. Um, yeah. Right. You know, so I, I continue to grow each day as an individual. Um, and, and, and I credit people on our program for, for, uh, uh, you know, really guiding the growth of inner city weightlifting, um, is right. part of what I do and make sure I will never stop doing is that I'll get people rides to and from the gym. That's my time to kind of, you know, pick someone's brain on where we're going, get input. Right. And so how we've grown and where we're looking to go over the next five years it's really centered on three core initiatives. One, grow and strengthen our core. And that's about quadrupling our impact numbers. So the number of trainers, the number of clients, um, number of external job placements. Two, completing our reach in Boston. So having enough 
uh, of either our own gyms or partnered gyms, uh, where we are able to work with anyone uh, regardless of where they may be from. So we don't mix people who have safety issues with each other and right. don't want to be around each other. And then third is geographic expansion. So we've got a virtual pilot off the ground in Chicago. Uh, and this year we'll be getting a small in-person pilot. Um, and, and again, to your question earlier, you know, how do we scale? Uh, I could give a bunch of theoretical answers, but the reality is we, we do it and we keep quality and authenticity at the core and, right. and, and we learn our lessons and, and evolve along the way. Um, you know, so again, Great. that's really where we want to go. And eventually, you know, I would also love to look at Baltimore and St. Louis and through those four cities, Boston, Chicago, Baltimore, St. Louis, if this is working in these four cities, that, at that point we can just switch to a collaborative approach. Because what, do you mean by that? what we're doing is not rocket science. I don't think ICW needs to be in every single city across the country. In fact, I, I, I one, I don't think that's the most efficient way. Uh, two, uh, being a nonprofit, I don't necessarily want to raise any more dollars than I actually have to. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if that's not true and worst case scenario, uh, we're in Miami and I get to go surfing more often, you know, so be it. Uh, yeah, I, I won't bad. complain. Um, but my hope is that, you know, ICW can really become more of a platform, um, more of a brand right. where the people in our program, uh, have their voice and agency amplified right? and, and society starts to value the entirety of a human rather than trying to judge someone based on a snapshot at a specific point in time. Right. Really? I mean, it, it's fascinating. I mean, what you do is so much more than weightlifting. I mean, really, I mean, you're, you're bringing people together. You're changing. You, you are having an impact on systemic racism. I mean, that, that is, it, it is so much bigger and, and, and opening people's eyes to, to other people building real relationships. And I guess a question outside of inner city weightlifting, is there advice you would give to other whether it be CEOs of Fortune Five companies or entrepreneurs or startups, to say, how what can you do with your organization to kind of you know shift the dynamic? Yeah, I, I would, I would say the most important thing someone can do is is to start by looking in the mirror because the issues that we are up against. There's no one person or or organization alone that is going to be able to solve anything. But the one thing we can control, it's our own actions. Right. And, and I think it really just comes down to that. And, and, you know, are we going to each day show that our words are backed by action and we're not going to, you know, not going to reach everyone. You're, you're going to get some people that, that think otherwise. Um, but you know, are you being authentic? Are you controlling what is within your control, which is you know much less than we would like to believe? Uh, right, yeah. and, and are we operating on that kind of um, moral ethical ground uh, that allows us to um, show up each day, uh, uh, leading not with our words, but what we are doing? Um, and sometimes that means uh, that you are not, in fact, all the time, it means that you may not be putting your own self-interests 
right in front of what's best for the entire group. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I want to encourage everyone who's listening here to kind of look into inner city weightlifting. So it, it just feels like, you know, I guess there's a lot of places you can go to increase your muscles. Right. But I think there's only few places you can go where you can increase your humanity. And, and, and it feels like what you guys are doing is, you know, it's almost like the, the weightlifting is important and it's, you know, and that's, that's kind of a, a core reason to go, right. I guess, you know, don't put yourself through the, the, the struggle of lifting the weights if you're not ready for that. But if you really want to change who you are not just at the muscle level, but at the human level, um, they should be talking to you guys. And, and, and with that, I guess, what, it, where, how can they find you? How can our listeners find you? innercityweightlifting.org. Um, and also for people who may not be near either of our gyms, we actually just launched a uh, ICW on-demand platform with exercise tips and, and follow-along workouts, um, which can also be found on our website. That's great. Well, John, it was great speaking with you today. I loved, um, I love what you're doing. It's, it's inspiring and I hope other people follow and, and join and, um, and take your lessons to heart. So thanks for being on the show and I look forward to chatting with you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to brand heart. We hope that today's episode inspired you to spread goodness and help those in need. If you know of a brand going above and beyond to help others, please share it with us via Twitter at showbrandheart. Brandheart is a production of Small Army, a Finn Partners company. To learn more, visit smallarmy.net or finpartners.com.